0: Welcome. I'm Richard Prosh, and this is another edition of Six-Gun Justice Conversations. These are occasional bonus downloads where my co-host, Paul Bishop, or I get to hang out around the virtual Six-Gun Justice podcast campfire, spend some time talking with friends who work in the Western genre. With me for this edition of the Six-Gun Justice podcast conversation, Bob Yoho is a West Virginia native with a passion for history and tales of the American West. He's author of the five-book Kellen Malone Western series, as well as books of historical fiction and nonfiction, His varied career includes speaker, radio talk show host, and political columnist, laboratory technician, and process operator in the chemicals industry. He currently resides in Ohio, and you can learn more about him at rgyoho.com. Thanks for reigning in with us under the virtual campfire, Bob.
1: Well, thank you, Rich. It's good to be here.
0: I'm going to jump right in with a subject that's near and dear to you, what led you to write about the West Virginia Colorado coal mine wars?
1: Okay, I was I was born in the West uh, West Virginia, <laughs> and uh, and, uh, and uh, I think uh, being a West Virginian coal mine is uh, coal mine experience is something that's kind of, kind of uh, it goes along with almost everybody in the state. I think it may be sort of in our DNA. And, uh it I was fascinated by the whole subject and and actually I had heard first learned about the history about that about 15 years ago and then as far as me actually writing about it you can blame Kevin Costner for that he did a uh, he did that thing on the history channel a three-day mini series about the Hatfields and McCoys which is an interesting part of West Virginia history but I do not believe it's the most important Probably the most interesting or most important thing in West Virginia history, and I believe that was the coal mine wars that took place in the early twentieth century.
0: I remember that uh, Kevin Costner miniseries. You remember
1: twentieth century, early twentieth century? I, I,
0: I do, um, but <laughs> I, I don't. I don't know too much about the the coal mine wars. Can you give us just a real short recap of what that all entailed?
1: Well. Uh, They've known about coal in West Virginia since it was part of Virginia clear back in the early 1700s. In fact, uh, Thomas Jefferson wrote about it in one of his books. And, and so they've known it was there and they knew it was all uh, all through that part of, uh, well, at that time, what well, was Virginia. And about the early to mid-1800s, uh, men like Collis Huntington and others began to want to get this coal to run their locomotives. And actually, the city in uh, West Virginia, Huntington, West Virginia, is named after Collis B. Huntington, who also had, uh, you, you know, as well as I do, had a big part in the transcontinental railroad. Sure. But he he started wanting to get coal there to fire up the for their locomotives. But access to West Virginia, well, Virginia at the time, was so difficult, they had to put railroads in to get it out. And by about the late 1800s, they were mining coal pretty pretty extensively in the whole eastern part of the United States and, and what what was West Virginia at that time. And and Rockefeller, John D. Rockefeller, bought interest in coal mines. They had the coal mine wars in Paint Creek and Cabin Creek, where striking miners were thrown out of there. They, they didn't want them to work on union contracts, and they threw the striking miners out, and they and the USMWA, United States uh, or United Mine Workers of America, placed them in these tent camps. And uh, as it came along, the strikers uh, they had something they called the Bull Moose Special, which was a machine gun mounted on a uh, railroad car that they'd come through and uh, fire machine gun fire into the tents of the striking uh, coal miners. They wow. also did. They also did the same thing. That happened there in about 1911, 1912 in Paint Creek and Cabin Creek, West Virginia. And a whole lot of what they did there, they repeated out in Colorado when Baldwin Felt's Detective Agency uh, went out there and they, they worked for for uh, Rockefeller in West Virginia. They were imported out there to do his mines out, which he had out around uh the uh, Spanish Peaks area of Colorado in the early 1900s, and many of the same activities and same crimes and misdeeds that they committed in West Virginia, they uh, did the same thing out in Colorado in about 1914.
0: I know that you've written about a character named Charles Lively, who was involved with some of this. How do you go about researching this?
1: Okay, I knew some about Charles Lively. To start with, newspaperarchive.com has been a great friend of mine because they've archived a bunch of the newspapers of that period of time. And fortunately, Charles Lively was a man that was in trouble a lot. Charles Lively was born in West Virginia in uh, 1887, uh, just outside of what we would now call Charleston, the state capital. He got his mine card, union card, when he was about 13. And best I can tell, probably around 1910, he began working for Baldwin Feltz, a detective agency, which hired people. Not only did they have mine guards, they also hired people to infiltrate the unions. Charles Lively communicated with the unions in secret And his code name, and that we know from documents that Thomas Feltz of Baldwin Feltz Agency, the vice president, left and and didn't destroy. These documents identified Lively as agent number nine. And that's what he communicated with when he sent these secret letters to uh, a post office box that was picked up. And and quite often, he usually acted like he was sending those to a girlfriend or something such as that or a business concern. And the whole time, he was spying on the Union miners and reporting back to Baldwin Feltz, who was giving it to the coal company. But as far as investigating him, I knew much about him. Charles Lively testified about about the violence in the West Virginia coal fields. He testified, him and Sid Hatfield, who was a sheriff in Matewan, that uh, the Matewan massacre happened on May 19, 1920. And uh, seven Baldwin-Feltz agents who, who came there to evict striking miners, 13 of them came there, and they were evicting striking miners from their homes. Later that afternoon, before they caught the train, seven of them were shot down in the street. Two citizens were killed. The mayor was shot and later died. Ten people died that day in Mate 1, West Virginia over uh, this, and that's what started it. And the truth is, after that day, that chewed out Mate 1, West Virginia, which some people call the Mate 1 Massacre, Lively started working after the Matewan massacre. He got a restaurant, which was on uh, in Matewan, West Virginia. He acquired a restaurant that was underneath, downstairs from the U the United Mine Workers offices, and it became a clearinghouse for information. No doubt, some of the people coming from upstairs failed to uh, quit talking about their business as they came down. But he was acquiring information. See, when the Matewan massacre occurred. Two of the seven agents that died that day, one of them was named Albert Feltz, one of them was named Lee Feltz, and they were the brothers of Thomas Feltz, the vice president of uh, Baldwin Feltz Agency. Needless to say, Thomas Feltz probably wanted revenge, clearly wanted revenge, and and Charles Lively was contacted by Baldwin Feltz to acquire information that would convict Sid Hatfield, the chief of police for the town, and the other, uh, people that were involved in the shooting of the agents and his brother.
0: So was history and and some of this specifically, or just in general history, something that you really followed and enjoyed when you were growing up?
1: I moved over here to Ohio about 1968, but I can tell you over in West Virginia from the people that went there and from my uh, limited experience with the schools over there, is they didn't teach this history. This kind of, you kind of learn this later on, it was pretty well left out of the West Virginia history books, and only now is becoming pretty widely known.
0: You know, that that's happened to me, too, in Nebraska. I, I, I learned most of my Nebraska history as an adult.
1: Unfortunately, I you know, I think the people that write the history books sometimes, uh, we're limited by what they want to tell you.
0: Exactly. So, you know, I enjoyed your novel, uh, Death Comes to Red Hawk. It's a pretty gripping revenge story. And well, Thank you. When it comes to fiction, do you prefer traditional Westerns over historicals? Or, you know, I know you've got uh, such a solid background in history. Do you also like historical novels?
1: I started out writing just pretty much uh, traditional Westerns. I probably wasn't as uh, mindful of the history as I should have been when I started. That, that book's really written almost 30 years ago, except for one scene in that thing. But as I grow older and I learn more, I try to incorporate more history into it, but I'm probably i probably never be what's really considered a, a historical fiction author. I prefer pretty much traditional or Western fiction and I, I think I'm probably better at that than I am. The history book that I wrote, the biography of Charles Lively, was all nonfiction and I found out it was an incredible amount of work and it was kind of a labor love at first, but if I had to do that kind of writing all the time, I don't think I would love it very much. It requires too much adherence to, to fact, and I kind of like to write the myth of the West a little bit, which I, I think still has a place out there.
0: I agree. I'd like to follow up on your nonfiction work a little bit and hear about another personage you wrote about, which is the sports hero Major Harris.
1: Well... I'm a big West Virginia University fan in football and basketball and, and have been since I was a kid. I, some I inherited from my father. And Major Harris played for West Virginia 87, 88, and 89. Uh, he left after, as a junior after his the 80, his 89 season. We followed him. We went to games there. If I saw Major Harris's game against Penn State in uh, 1988. My father and I was there, and they had beat Penn State Gosh knows, I don't know how many years. And we saw that game where he defeated Penn State and Joe Paterno. I realized that Major Harris had never had a book written on him. Well, I, I was sort of a book writer. So I thought, well, maybe I'll try to get a hold of him. I spent the better part of two years trying to figure out how to contact him. Even then, the internet wasn't as prevalent as it is now. I finally figured out how to get a hold of him. And I started writing what was, was to be an authorized biography. Had it been otherwise, I I think I would have written I would have written it quite different had uh, not been trying to write an authorized biography. But there were some difficulties there toward the end of it once it was written. And and strangely enough, my timing was almost perfect because I had the book done the same year he was uh, chosen to be in the College Football Hall of Fame.
0: Did you get to know him fairly well?
1: Yeah, I got to know him pretty pretty well we spent at least 30 hours in phone conversations two in-person meetings and the book never was quite as successful as it should have been and uh, i think it's unfortunate really i he was a great athlete i think years before his time and uh you know I, he would fit right in the nfl right now but i don't believe the nfl was ready for his kind of player in 1989
0: that's a good point. Uh and so many of these people uh you get to know them and you get to see their life and and uh, it's stuff that history doesn't necessarily teach us. It's it's I think it's up to people like you to to dig through uh what we think we know and find out what was real and I think we find out that you know people were ahead of their time or behind their time. That's a really good point.
1: At that time the NFL was searching for big tall drop back quarterbacks and they weren't They weren't looking for guys that would sort of improvise. And uh, I don't think the NFL was ready for it.
0: I always enjoy your nonfiction work. And you've published um, columns in Roundup magazine, which is the Western Writers of America magazine. And uh, I remember one that was specifically a lot of fun. It was about, correct me if I'm wrong, you were traveling to your first WWA convention. But it was was kind (laughs) of a travel story and all the different mishaps. Do you remember that?
1: Yes, I do. I I, I happened upon that uh, column the other day and was kind of looking at it. Uh, just strange you brought it up. Yeah, I had a I had a heck of a day that day. I missed my flight and and missed my flight from my own stupidity. It was it was absolutely nothing else. I was sitting there eating breakfast and and I missed my flight and my luggage went ahead of me and <laughs> I met it later. You know, and, uh, it it was pretty. It's it's a pretty drawn out uh, story about that whole day and how I still somehow got to their event they were having that night. The story's uh, pretty unusual. I'm running through airports, grabbing luggage, and and trying to meet shuttles that I that they said I couldn't make. And it reminded me, and and I even said it there. It reminded me of the old O. J. Simpson airports uh, commercials for Hertz, where he's running through the airport. It was about like that that day. <laughs>
0: tell me about about your experience with wwa you've uh, you've been to several conventions and you've you've uh, like me I, and all of us i imagine you've made various friends and just what's it what's it been like
1: oh i love the wwa finest organization i ever been a part of I, i'm just i'm proud to be a member i'm i'm kind of uncertain about why they would allow me to be a member <laughs> you know, it was I? I think it was Groucho Marx that he didn't want to be a member of any organization that would have him in their membership. Or, and, uh, <laughs> I kind of feel that way sometimes. Strangely enough, I'm actually running for the board this year too.
0: Oh, congratulations.
1: Uh, well, thank you. Uh, I don't know whether you should congratulate them or not. If I get elected, it, <laughs> they might need a sympathy card, but, <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I, I was honored to be nominated for that. And, uh, W.W.A. is just better than I ever imagined. I mean, the people are great. Some of the nicest people I ever met in my life. I've actually learned over the years, I, I'm, I'm kind of a homebody and I always like coming home. But I will tell you this, wherever the W.W.A. meets, wherever it is, and you move around to conventions from site to site through, you know, every year. But wherever they meet is the only place in my life I've ever been where I ever felt at home away from home.
0: So uh, who are some of your inspirations growing up? You know, you read about, read westerns, uh, watch TV, watch movies, thinking about the West, the Wild West. Uh, what what I, turned you on as a kid?
1: I'd say the greatest inspiration has to have been my dad. My dad used to carry a Louis L'Amour book in his uh, lunch bucket to work. He was a chemical plant worker, and he had a Louis L'Amour novel in his lunch bucket every day he went to work. And I used to I'll, I'll show you who the smart one in our family really was. I used to make fun of him for reading those Dom novels. And then somewhere about the time I went away to college, I decided maybe I ought to read what I'm making fun of. So I grabbed one of them out of his lunch bucket. Uh, it was called Flint. And it was the first Louis L'Amour book I ever read. And from that moment on, I was hooked. So I made fun of him about reading those books. And then once I read them, I had to read them too. Of course, Lou the moor was a great. You know, was a great inspiration on me. But I, I blame Dad for that because he he uh, started me down a career. He took us to John Wayne movies, and I actually I wrote a column about it that was in uh, Saddlebag Dispatches about my dad. But he was he was tragically killed uh, two years ago this past November in a uh, farming accident. I'm I miss him greatly. He he was a tremendous inspiration to me. He. He's really the one more than anybody, along with my mother, who passed away several years before he did. I found out later, I I knew she'd written a few poems, but I didn't realize how extensively until she passed away. My my sister was going through her things and found uh, she'd written a lot of poems. So I'm thinking I probably got the inspiration and uh, uh, love for the West from going to John Wayne movies with my dad and things such as that. And probably my love for writing probably came from my mother.
0: That's really special. And that's really important. I think uh, a lot of people that I've talked to that are writers or successful writers, there's there's kind of that fostering of uh, of something when they were kids from somebody, you know, an uncle, a, a father, grandfather, something. Yeah, that's, that connection can be really important for for young writers and and us old writers, too.
1: Yeah. Mine didn't really unlike a lot of people and most of the writers I know I I didn't start till I was close to 30 years old I didn't if you told me it, in high school or even my college years that I would be a an author at some point I probably laughed at you but I did notice even back then that I enjoyed the papers you have to write for school I kind of enjoyed them and I, so I can see the I can see the seeds being sown way back then and I remember I remember even in elementary school, the first time I walked into an elementary school library and I saw all those books on the shelves and I asked, I said, can we can we read all these books? And they said, sure, they're here for, for you. And I had never seen so many books in my life. And I, I loved reading as a kid. And so I think the seeds were being sown clear back then, although it'd be another 15 years or so or more before I knew it.
0: Until there was enough stuff to to write about. I remember when I was in college and I wrote a few things and my dad was, uh, you know, he was encouraging, but he was also like, well, you know, you haven't necessarily lived enough to write about too much yet. <laughs> and, and of course, at, you know, 20 years old, that didn't go over very well, but uh, looking back now, I can see what he, what he might've meant.
1: Yeah. 20 year olds know everything and and dads are a little simple about, the <laughs> cut. <laughs> A couple of years later, Dad started looking pretty smart, and, and we realized we weren't all that bright back then.
0: Uh huh. So, Bob, I'd like to wrap up our conversation by, again, pointing listeners to your website at rgyoho.com and also reminding them to check out your work as it appears in Roundup magazine.
1: Thank you, Rich.
0: And thanks to you for listening. Paul and I appreciate your support of our Six-Gun Justice podcast and hope you continue to enjoy each and every episode. As always, a hearty thank you to our sponsors, Wolfpack Publishing, author Chris Enns, and the Western Writers of America for making this podcast possible. Be sure to check our website, www.sixgunjustice.com, for links to previous podcast episodes, speed listens, and prior conversations, along with reviews, interviews, and articles from the Western genre. Till next time, keep the sun at your back, and a good horse at hand. Let's ride.